Hello everyone, I'm Dana Stewart-Bullock and this is Transformational Therapeutics. In today's podcast, I will be talking about emotion. I will, of course, first define it and then talk about how to see emotions in a new way, a way that originates in the definition of emotion itself. So welcome. Emotions are feeling states that originate in the most primitive areas of our brains, have a body-wide impact, and are oftentimes unconscious and contain within them the impulse to act. The word emotion comes from the Latin emovera, to move out. So emotional states carry with them the impulse on a physiological level to move. There's now good evidence of the connections between emotional states and the patterns they create in one's body. These are not only visceral patterns, but also musculoskeletal patterns of posture, pain, grief, etc. And these are all forms of language. My dear friend Rebecca Doring, a healer in her own right, has joined me for today's topic. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. So today we are talking all about emotions. I think this topic is going to be really impactful. Can you tell me about emotions in regards to your model? Yes. Because the basis of the model is transformation, the whole goal in this is to learn about emotions and then to change them, to have the power to change your own emotions and your own state. So emotions create a state, a physiological state, a feeling state. Emotions can be equated with feelings in your body, in our bodies. With each feeling state are associated postures and inner visceral feelings. Visceral feelings are states like a gut feeling or butterflies in your stomach. They're feelings that actually come from our viscera to our brains, not from, for instance, our musculoskeletal system. And a visceral feeling or a visceral state is a really deep, oftentimes unconscious state of being. And the ability to manage emotions is a real learned skill comes from a different part of the brain than where the emotions reside. The emotions reside in the very primitive part of the brain, in the brainstem. And our prefrontal cortex is the area that matures later on, usually by 25. And that is the area of our brain that makes us choose what to pay attention to. And so the combination of the brainstem, emotional brain, and the prefrontal cortex allows for a being that is in charge of their emotions as opposed to being run by their emotions. And that would be the goal for me. Many emotions are unconscious. We learn them very young. We oftentimes suppress them. We're not aware of them. And they oftentimes show up in our physical bodies as symptoms. And then we go into a disease model and we label them from a disease model when in actuality the origin may very well be suppressed emotions that we haven't yet cleared from our physiology. Can you tell me more about what an emotion really is? Well, emotions in essence are impulses to act. So an emotion is a feeling state that arises very deep in our brain, in a primitive area of our brain. Originally in evolution, it's there to preserve us, to keep us preserved over our lifetimes. So the basic emotions are preservative. Can you explain that? Well, one of the basic emotions is fear. And so to understand fear, 
that it's to preserve you. We're so civilized now, but before we were so civilized, you can see it in animals. Fear is a protective reaction to keep them alive. I mean, that's the fundamental purpose of fear. Mm, That makes sense. So emotions are preservatives and you said instinct to act? Yeah. As I said, the word comes from the Latin for to move out of. And so every emotion we have has with it an instinct to move. And even if the movement is an inner movement, not a physical outside movement, there's still that instinct there. You mentioned also that emotions have associated postures with them. Could you tell more about that? (laughs) They do because the emotions are carried in our physiology. And it's only recently the science has proven that the receptors in our tissues, in the fascia in our body, are actually feedback loops to the brain and carry a lot of the emotional signals. People talk about the mind-body, and that's a reality, that what appears in your brain as an emotion will also appear in your body, via most of the receptors in the fascia, and they will set up a feedback loop between the brain and the body. And create a specific posture? Yes, yes. It's really fascinating because I once watched a video of of an orangutan that was in a lab and it was doing some sort of test with the lab worker and it it got an answer wrong. And you could see its entire body went to collapse, which is what we do when we feel shame or we feel we haven't done something correctly. So many postures are across humans and, and primates are alike. And we see it all the time. And some of it we project onto our animals, but, but it is, we know the posture of collapse, we know the posture of bravado, we also know the postures of joy, the movement of joy, dance. Every emotion has a posture associated with it. And to me, that is, is a language in and of itself. It's really quite readable and useful. Did this come into play with your work as a physical therapist? Yes, because what happens is I learned to, to look at postures and gait and all of that sort of thing in school. One reads people coming into your office, seeing what kind of emotional state they're in. We all do that. You can have someone walk into a room and just look at them and know they're in a bad mood or they're in a good mood. So energetically, it's quite obvious. We may not be conscious of it, but it is obvious. And it basically has a huge amount of power to it in our interactions with other people. As a physical therapist, as a manual therapist, I would see people's posture, which would tell me volumes before I even got them on my table. And then the actual palpation of tissues, you get an idea of someone's emotional state by palpating the state of their tissues. And it shows up in their tissues. It shows up cranially. As somebody who does cranial work and has for 40 years, you can actually take someone and have your hands on their head. You're just palpating their cranial system and ask them to feel a certain emotion, ask them to feel love, and their entire cranial system expands just in that feeling. You can then ask them to feel sad and the whole thing contracts. Mm. And so that to me was the gauge of the physiology's import in terms of carrying the emotions that we feel. Do emotions stay in the tissues as well? Well, it depends on the emotion, but but if you just think about how we act out of our emotions, think about anger and what it does and how stiff it can make us and contracted. If it's not understood and cleared or understood and worked through, 
it stays in the tissue. There's a famous doctor, Bessel van der Kolk, who talks about the body keeps the score. And he talked about, particularly when you go through trauma, being able to work it out physically. And this is just sort of common knowledge now. But he talked about the um, survivors of Katrina who emotionally did better because they went out and helped each other and rebuilt houses and cleared land and whatever they were working with each other. So that's a physical manifestation and a way to clear from inside of you, from your physiology, some of the emotions that had come up. If you don't have that, for instance, if you're sitting in front of a computer all the time and you have an emotional reaction to a YouTube video or to something that you see in the news, you can tighten up in your body and in your brain and not have an outlet for it, not realize it, and then you carry that with you and it affects your mood, it affects your physiological state, it has a huge impact on you and that's proven science. Mm. So how does your model help with this? Well, I'm interested primarily in connection and connection within myself and, and between people. And if you look at relationships, which are a form of connection, you just see how people don't really know how to relate in a way that resolves, that changes the form of their interaction. So understanding that much of what drives us is unconscious. It's deep inside of us, they're old emotions, and they drive us without our knowing it. And you can have an emotion arise when you're interacting with somebody. You will think that it is because of what that person is doing. But it's actually an emotion that originated inside your own physiology and is driving you to act in a certain way with that person. And it could be an emotion, unresolved emotion, for instance, of grief. How many times have I had girlfriends say to me, you know, I can never find the right guy. I always keep getting these losers. And my reaction to that is, is it that the guys are losers or is it your experience, your emotional experience that you've attached to guys and makes you attract people who then disappoint you? And in transformational therapeutics, for me, I tend to take responsibility for what happens in my life. So if I keep attracting guys that are losers, that's on me. And I can go in and examine how I am participating in that and not blame the guy and when I blame the guy over and over again, I'm just reproducing whatever that original emotional state was. So I'm not changing the form of it. I'm interested in changing the form of it. How do you do that? Well, every emotional state which comes up has a time attached to it and a time in our development is attached to it. Oftentimes what will happen between two people is that a state will come up in one of them and it, you can hear it. You make me so angry. I'm so upset. I'm so whatever. That state that the person who's upset is in has a time to it unless the person they're interacting with is th literally threatening them. There's no real reason to get upset. So if I am interacting with somebody and thinking I'm so upset and they're not threatening me, there's something inside of me that has not yet been resolved. And that state that I am in, that upset state, goes back to another time in my life. And that's the time frame. So I may be arguing with somebody and actually be a 12-year-old in that argument, because that's when that state was first inculcated in me and my emotions. It wasn't resolved back then. And I revert to that state in the situation that is similar to the original situation.
how can that manifest that emotion, that state in that interaction? You know, I've said before, the development of the observer is the first act of empowerment. So to get outside of yourself and watch yourself in an interaction and ask yourself, is this really appropriate in this situation? Is this really an appropriate reaction? Is that person pointing a gun at me? Am I really threatened? Am I really whatever the situation is? But if I'm having a reaction as though I was threatened, then that's my emotions coming up. And I can see that and then I can ask myself, okay, if it's not appropriate to the present, when is it appropriate? And I can say, oh, yeah, I had this feeling when I was 10 or when I was 15. I'm not 15 now. And that person across from me is not the person that was across from me when I'm 15. I don't have to react like that. I can empower myself to react differently, to respond differently in the moment, functionally by seeing and seeing the corollary, seeing the patterns that I carry in me from a go from the past. What specifically could you observe in that moment? I could observe my physical body becoming more tense. I can observe the tone of my voice. I can observe the words I use. But actually, in interactions, 70% of what we hear from someone else is the prosody or the tone of the voice, not the actual words. And just knowing that. And so if something sets me off, I can really ask myself, is that about me? Is that tone of voice? Is this person my parent who yelled at me when I was seven years old? Or is this a different situation? So I can literally analyze it within the moment and then reassure myself, no, this is not whoever yelled at me when I was seven. This is my friend how or whatever. And then I can start start to change. It's not something that happens overnight. It takes a lot of practice. But it becomes sort of like a game when you interact and you just start watching yourself and seeing. And in some ways, it becomes kind of ludicrous how much we get into our feelings and go back and forth in a, a frame that isn't appropriate to the present. So much of how we interact is really from the past. Yeah, and it sounds like what you're describing is a tool to become present in that moment yes. with everything that's coming up. And to become present in not only in your physiology, in the moment, in your physiology, and in your language. Because presence in your language is the essence of this model. Mm. To really use a language that you're present in so that you're actually understanding everything that comes out of your mouth, that it comes from a place of presence. So much of it doesn't in our culture today. Can you describe that a bit more in context of the motion? It has to do with having dialogue, appropriate dialogue. If we just look at Congress and how they're unable to come to a common ground, I see it as their emotions getting in the way. And so people are yelling at each other. And in that yelling at each other, they're not coming to a place where they can both be present in the language. They're present in the emotions, but they're not present in the language that they're using. Well, being present in the language, A, has to do with knowing the definitions of the words that you're using, understanding the background for you of what each word actually means. That's a big task, but understanding the meaning of what you're saying to someone. From your background. From your own background. What does that mean? So I've been playing around with grief. 
playing around with grief, right? But anyway, <laughs> and grieving. And so I looked up the word grief, and the origin of the word grief is burden. And I had done a session a while ago with a woman who talked about me carrying burdens, and I've talked about burdens forever, but I didn't connect it to grief. And so the essence of grief is that it's a burden, and so that explains much of my physical symptoms. What did burden mean to you? Oh, burden just meant to me carrying a lot, mm-hmm. doing, uh, having a lot of responsibilities, what a burden meant. Mm-hmm. And I didn't connect it with grief as being unresolved grief. Mm-hmm. But once I understood that, it totally changed how I see the burden I'm carrying. And it changes my focus. It now allows me to focus on grief rather than the burden. Yeah. And so I keep talking about the burden, the bur- and the animals are too much, and the house is too much. But it's really the grief is too much. If I could um, clear some of the grief and work through some of the grief more, I think I would have more energy available to me to lift the other burdens. It's really cumulative. But grief seems to be the one, and it's mind-boggling to me that there's so much in there, but it seems to be the one that is underlying everything. It sounds like you're completely describing everything you've talked about and you're practicing that right now through the process of grief. You've had this unconscious emotion that you did not have access to that you were suppressing and carrying around and labeling as burden, which was not helping you move through it. You've become present in the language of how you defined both those words and what the definitions mean, which is now opening up a choice. Right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It gives me power. For whatever reason, all the burdens that I've been trying to address haven't really changed. And I've only gotten weaker and sicker and whatever. But once I start addressing grief, and by addressing it, I mean really grieving. And whatever that means, I'll do that. I mean, I've done so much already. Sort of mind-boggling to me that there is so much there. And in doing that, it frees up this energy I use to suppress the grief. It frees up that energy in my physical form to give me more literal power in my body. Sure. Well, even as you now process the grief, it will be very different because you're going to be doing it from a more present in the language place. Exactly. Whereas before when you were grieving, there was a lot of disconnection and And it And it would come up. Right. I mean, it would just come up in floods of agony. Mm. And it made no sense to me at the time, whatever situation I was in. It was sort of like the physiology was talking to me and I wasn't hearing it. That's really interesting. And so it would come up and I would label it in the situation, not realizing that it was really old and where it had come from. And the belief, the thinking that I had grieved enough is not true. Because again, I don't believe the body ever lies. So my body is telling me, no, you've got more to do, more work to do on grief. Right. And we want you to grieve from a place of presence. Right. And and a a place of presence to me means a place of understanding what it is I'm actually doing. What is the meaning of it? Exactly. Exactly. So you're conscious of it in the moment rather than this thing just happening to you. Right. Rather than the physiology just erupting. Right. And tears pouring out of me and not understanding. But if I had seen it as language and associated it with what was happening, I would have had more ability. Now that I understand it, it didn't make sense. But now that I understand it, 
and I understand more about grief, that grief comes has its own schedule and its own timing. I can label it as grief rather than, I don't know what my body's doing, and have some compassion for myself that, that the grief is appropriate. That, that it just, if I really trust my body and the physiology of it, then I have to trust that it's coming up for me to clear. And it really will build trust in the long run. Sure. And more connection to yourself. Right. And I imagine then in regards to the physiology, maybe now the tissues can actually release some of that emotion rather than saying, nope, she didn't get the message. We need to keep sending this grief signal because we want her to do it from a place of knowledge and consciousness. Consciousness. Yeah. 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 How would you suggest starting to work with clearing your emotions when emotions can feel so overpowering, like you just described with, with grief? Because they can be overwhelming and take over and it's hard to find your way through is just to acknowledge that that is what's happening, that I'm in a state and my body is talking to me. I think that's the really first, first thing. Yeah. And, and instead of labeling as pain or disease or dysfunction, it's it's talking to me, that's all. And it takes some of the charge out of it. Sure, because then you're no longer being tumbled by it, but you're you're observing it and you're shifting into a place of presence. Yes. And over time, over repetition, a pattern gets established so that you start listening to your body and listening to the language more clearly. There is a haiku that says, don't ask the mountain to move, just take a pebble each time you visit. So when you're overwhelmed by a feeling and knowing that it's a state, just take a little piece and just look at it and say, oh, my body's talking to me, it's okay. Yeah, what a comfort that could offer. And you may have to say it over and over and over again while you're in it. Sure, one pebble at a time. Yeah. Yeah.